0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 9, Genesis chapters 9 and 10. Open your Bibles to Genesis 9. We've been studying Genesis 9. And just to kind of get us back on track here from last week, I'm going to read from verse 18 to the end of Genesis 9. Verse 18 to the end of Genesis 9. The sons of Noah who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and the whole earth was populated by them. Now Noah, a farmer, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank so much of the wine that he got drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father shamefully exposed, went out and told his two brothers. Shem and Japheth took a cloak, put it over their shoulders, and walking backward, went in and covered their naked father. Their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father lying there shamefully exposed. When Noah awoke from his wine... He knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan. He will be a servant of servants to his brothers. Then he said, Blessed be Adonai, the god of Shem. Canaan will be their servant. May God enlarge Yephet. He will live in the tents of Shem, but Canaan will be their servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. In all, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Well, in verse 18 of chapter 9, the new history of man begins. Let's explore that for, for just a few moments. Just as Adam was the beginning of all mankind on earth, so it is with the new Adam, Noah. If it is true that it is patterns that we should be looking for to understand God and his ways, then we ought to find an identifiable pattern begun with Adam, from whom all men would come, that carries over to Noah, the one from whom all men would come after the flood. And of course we do. And while we all relate the fall of Adam that event we call the fall of man we seldom remember that Noah also fell and he fell rather quickly I might add now let me just list a handful of the attributes of this God pattern that we see in Torah first Adam was made dominant over all creation Noah was made dominant over all the purified new world Second, Adam was blessed by God and instructed to be fruitful and multiply. So was Noah. Third, Adam was placed in a garden and his job was to till, that is to care for the garden as the world's first farmer. Noah began as a gardener as well, for he was the first to plant a vineyard as the new world's first farmer. Adam fell by means of eating of the fruit that grew in that garden that he tended. Noah fell by means of eating, drinking, of the fruit that was made into wine in the garden that he tended. Adam's nakedness was uncovered as a result of his sin of eating that fruit. Noah's nakedness was uncovered as a result of his sin of eating of that fruit. Okay. Adam's sin resulted in a curse being placed onto man. Noah's sin resulted in a curse being placed on the entire line of Ham. Okay. Adam had three sons, among whom one, Seth, Shet, right, was to be the line of righteousness through whom the Messiah would eventually come. Noah had three sons, among whom one, Shem was to be the line of righteousness through whom the Messiah would come. We could go on. There are many more parallels. All right. But that's enough to illustrate how the patterns God establishes repeat. And because of these established patterns of God, history itself is cyclical. It repeats. Now, at this point, we're introduced... To the three distinct lines of descendancy from which every human alive comes. And these three are down here at the bottom of the, uh, of the diagram Shem, Ham and it says here Japheth but it's Japheth in Hebrew. Japheth. Now, you and I come from one of these three. Probably, kind of like Heinz 57 varieties, we probably got a little of all of these guys in us, would be my suspicion. But more than likely, one of these represents the dominant gene pool that makes up us. Now, a story... Notice that of the three sons, Ham is spoken of as the father of Canaan. Canaan. All right. now, now that's a little unusual in the Hebrew format for a father to have his familial identity wrapped up in his son. It's usually the other way around. Okay. Well, we're going to quickly find out why that is. Now a story is told beginning in verse 20 and it continues on through verse 27 and it's so emotionless and told in such a matter-of-fact way that it seems almost trifling, unimportant and not just a little bit difficult to understand. In several places, particularly in the Old Testament, we run across these odd scenes like this one with Noah in his tent all right. that seems almost out of place and slightly out of context. It's, it's, I mean, what is this about? All right. The problem is not with the verses. It's with our inability to connect them to the matters of grave importance they address. So let's examine closely what happens here. Okay. This is about Noah planting a vineyard making wine and getting drunk. Then he crawls inside his tent, falls asleep naked as a jaybird. Yes, that great godly man Noah got snockered on booze. That's how it is. In this case, wine. And by the way, this is the first mention of wine in Scripture. Now, much argument over these verses has occurred over the centuries. Mostly centered around whether or not Noah accidentally created wine and innocently drank it and had the world's first hangover. Not a chance. Sorry. Noah undoubtedly knew the result of fermenting grapes and then drinking the results. I mean, Noah was just a man. He had flaws. And the beauty of our scriptures is that they don't... They don't sanitize humans, not even our greatest ones. They don't make these people perfect and infallible like all the false religions tend to do with their leaders and founders, turning them into mini-gods. Not even the greatest men of the Bible are mentioned without including some of their fupas and disagreeable character traits. And the reason for this is very straightforward. Their righteousness, our righteousness, before God is not dependent on us. It's dependent on God. Always has been, always will be. All right. Now, for some reason, Ham enters the tent of Noah and discovers him drunk and naked. And, and he goes out of the tent and he tells his two brothers, Shem and Japheth, the two brothers drape a cloak over their shoulders, they walk backwards into Noah's tent, let the garment fall over their father's nakedness without having looked upon it. Well, when Noah wakes up, he's offended and he's angry, and he takes his hangover out, All right, not so much on Ham, but on Ham's son Canaan. He pronounces a curse upon Canaan, yet... There's more to what's going on here than only a curse on Ham's line. There's also some blessings pronounced upon Shem and Japheth. Now, before we discuss those blessings, the logical question here is, why was Noah so upset? And why did his grandson Canaan, who doesn't even appear to be involved in all this, get the brunt of the curse? Well, ancient sages have come up with all sorts of interesting reasons, but without going into detail, the thought is that some type of unnatural act was performed upon Noah because Ham had become a wicked man. Virtually every competent Bible uses words in verse 24 that says something like, and when Noah awoke, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Yet, Though I used to think so, I no longer accept that Ham did anything to his father other than to see him naked and then to run out and report to his brothers what he had seen. I see that there were likely two crimes committed by Ham. First was the crime of dishonoring his father. This was a big deal back in that day. It was not about the seeing of Noah drunk and naked that was the crime. It was what he did about it. Rather than show respect for co- and, and, and by covering his father and then leaving without uttering a word, Ham dashed outside and tattled to his brothers. And in doing so, Ham did not honor his father. And what a principle is laid down here. Noah deserved to be honored. A, because he was Ham's father. And B, because God called Noah, of all men on earth, of which there were darn few right about now, tzaddik, righteous. Righteous in his sight. If God thought Noah righteous, then that's the end of the matter. Ham should not have pointed out his father's sin to his brothers. Okay. The second crime Ham may have committed, and I, this is my own theory, I will tell you that. This is my speculation on the matter. is a, is, is a, is a crime that, that, that the Bible in Hebrew calls Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara. Right. Lashon Hara is speaking evil of someone. Usually it's in the form of gossip. Now, though it may not sound all that serious, in fact, once we get to Leviticus and begin discussing tzaraat, which is the skin disease that happens, it's usually called leprosy and it's not leprosy. Okay, We're going to see that this Zaraat, this disease, is thought to be a punishment of God. And that the crime or sin usually associated with the contracting of Zahra'at is Lashon Hara, speaking evil of someone. Now, Canaan was named as the Cursed One, likely because Canaan would have more to do directly with Israel than any other descendant of Ham. But, But the Bible shows us that in reality, And we'll see this as we go through today. All of Ham's line was cursed. Not just Canaan. Well, Noah's other two sons, Shem and Japheth, reacted correctly. They discreetly and honorably covered their father's nakedness, making every effort to give their father the utmost respect. Well, here in Genesis 9, verses 25, 26, and 27, the futures and destinies of Noah's three sons and the three lines of descent from which every human alive today is attached, is set in stone. In other words, what we have contained in these few words of verses 25, 26, and 27 is a powerful prophecy for the future of the human race. Now, before we get there, let me... First, mention that Shem. Uh, the name Shem means glory, but can it all? It can also mean name. Not name like in Tom, Dick, or Harry, all right? But name in the sense of making a name for some for for someone's self, or in the sense of a powerful person, right, Full of authority, that type of a name. All right. Ham means hot or warm or burning heat. And the name Yephet means enlargement, as in fruitfulness. All right. But it can also indicate beauty. All right. Now, bearing all this in mind, let's now look at the blessings and curses that Noah pronounces on his children. Starts out. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. Now, Canaan, Ham's son, receives a curse. What's a curse? It's the opposite of a blessing. A blessing is a beneficial thing. A curse is a judgment. Just as people who are born into the line of blessing, the line of Shem, did nothing To merit such good fortune, so it is with people who are born into the line of the curse, the line of Ham. They did nothing to merit their misfortune. The people that came from Ham's sons, primarily Canaan, became the races that occupied Africa, who have for centuries suffered the fate of subjugation. Now, there's much more to this than just a lack of personal freedom, but the idea is that the descendants of Canaan, and actually all from Ham, will be subject to the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Now, we must take note that if we look at all of Ham's descendants, they represent the enemies of Israel at one time or another in history. And so we'll find Israel either conquering or being conquered by the descendants of Ham. The people of Egypt came from Ham. And interestingly, so did the Philistines. Now, moving along. Blessed be Adonai, the God of Shem and Canaan shall be their slave. Here we have more proof that something went very wrong with Ham and his children, for it indicates that while Shem will follow God, Ham's descendants are going to choose another direction. But what we have here is also indicating that Shem's ancestors are going to carry the authority for Noah's family which basically means authority for all mankind. Okay, Let me say that again. The rulership of mankind is within the line of Shem because it was handed over to him by Noah in this blessing. Okay, Noah had every right to do that. Just as Adam was preeminent over all other men uh, for a long time, So was Noah, in essence, the king of the world, immediately following the flood. Small world at that moment. He was the head of the only family that existed on planet Earth. His authority was absolute among men. And Noah chose to hand that power over to Shem. And, And we see that this is so because God the only God is called Shem's God okay, indicating a linkage, an allegiance a relationship between Shem and Yahweh and this relationship with Yahweh is not associated with either Yephet or Ham Shem would become the Hebrews the Arabs and most of the Orientals okay Now, the next blessing from Noah was, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So this blessing bestowed upon Japheth was somewhat dependent on his relationship with Shem. The descendants of Japheth would benefit when they were in good relationship with Shem, which is what the meaning is of shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth was the branch of the family which would enlarge, that is, grow greatest in population and wealth. Japheth is the ancestor of the Romans and the Greeks, and most of the European peoples who were the ancestors of the early American colonists. And at no time in the history of the world has such wealth and fruitfulness, such enlargement been seen as is what happened first in Rome, then in Europe, then in America. And it all has to do with this blessing upon Yefet. Okay, And again the descendants of Canaan, but in reality Ham, were to be subject to Japheth's offspring just as they would be subject to Shem's offspring. Well, in the last couple of chapters of Genesis, you don't have to turn there tonight, the last couple of chapters of Genesis, this exact pattern that we just witnessed with Noah, this blessing and cursing, is repeated. And it concerns the blessing that a dying Jacob, Jacob called Israel, pronounced on his 12 male children, his 12 sons. Now in a few months, when we arrive there, we will look extensively at this blessing because it's every bit as monumental as Noah's blessing upon his three sons. Now let me just give you a slight preview of it so that you can see this important relationship between the blessing of Noah and then hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, the blessing of Jacob. Soon in Genesis, we're going to be introduced to the formalized biblical concept of the firstborn blessing. In essence... The firstborn blessing ceremony is like the reading of the family will at the death of the father. Only the firstborn blessing took place before the death of the father because it was to be pronounced by the father. The father at some point, usually late in his life, would decide it was time for him to tell his boys, his sons, who was to receive what upon his eventual death. And by tradition, it was the first male child born to that man, the firstborn, who received the bulk of everything the father owned, plus that son was now going to be the patriarch, the ruler of that family or tribe, however small or however large it was. The firstborn was never a female. Okay? I don't care if a guy had 15 daughters and then one son. All right, That one son was the firstborn. So the firstborn blessing now consists of two major components. First, the passing forward of the right to the family's authority and power goes to that person. And second, the passing forward of what came eventually to be called the double portion blessing. Some people equate the double portion and the firstborn. It's not true. A double portion is a piece of the overall firstborn blessing. Okay. In theory, the double portion meant that the firstborn son got double the amount given to any of the other sons in the family. So, for instance, if a man had four sons, he would divide all he had into five parts and give his firstborn two of those five parts and the remaining sons got one part each of the remaining three parts. Simplistic way of looking at it, but it really wasn't always that neat and clean because it wasn't necessarily the exact giving of double. It could have been practically everything, Oh, we were talking about the double portion. And that that sometimes... I mean, it wasn't so... It wasn't mathematically perfect. All right? uh, sometimes that, that firstborn son would get virtually everything. Other times he'd get maybe just a tad more than the others. The father had great latitude in how he did this. Now, now stay with me on this. all right? Because understanding the firstborn blessing is very helpful in understanding Scripture. So, the firstborn son by tradition, gets all the power and he gets the bulk of the family's wealth. His siblings are now under that firstborn's authority. What we saw in Noah's blessing was a type of firstborn blessing before it became formalized and was given a name. Of Noah's three sons, two got blessings, one got a curse. Now, what's interesting is that in a, the typical firstborn blessing, the transfer of family authority and family fruitfulness, wealth, enlargement, goes to the same son. But in Noah's blessing, the blessing got split. Shem received the authority and Yephet the fruitfulness, fruitfulness, the wealth. The biblical term enlargement. That's strange. Now we fast forward several hundred years into these last couple of chapters of Genesis. Jacob, called Israel, is now living in Egypt. He calls his 12 sons to him because he's on his deathbed. And he knows his time is getting near, so he performs this all-important firstborn blessing, which you'll find in Genesis 49. Now, due to the indiscretions of the first three of his sons... Jacob winds up declaring Judah, his fourth son, as the firstborn. Actually, doing that isn't all that strange. It happened with some frequency that the real firstborn was passed over for a younger son who had won favor with his father. The real strangeness is that Jacob goes against, now by now, very established custom and tradition, And he splits the firstborn blessing. He gives the family's power and authority to Judah, but he gives the double portion, the family's wealth, expressed as the blessing of enlargement and fruitfulness, to Joseph. There's a little kicker on that we won't get into tonight, but we will later. But but it's to Joseph. This is highly unusual, but it is exactly... The same thing Noah had done all those years earlier. The impact of what Noah did merely set the destinies of all the peoples and nations of the world until history ends. That's all. All The impact of what Jacob did set the stage for the emergence of the Messiah who would redeem mankind and put an end to history as we know it through Judah's offspring and the taking of the fruitfulness of the gospel to the whole world through Joseph's family Okay, we're going to probably quite literally spend a month on this the last couple of chapters of Genesis where this all takes place so vital is that it's, is it's important to us to understand now here's the thing to keep in mind as we go forward the accursed Canaan son of Ham is the founder and namesake of the land of Canaan. Okay, the land that God told Moses and then Joshua to take away from its inhabitants okay, who were the descendants of Canaan. Okay, the land that God set aside for his chosen people, Israel, as they came up out of, the, out of Egypt, of course, was the land of Canaan. Populated from the accursed Cain, Canaan, okay. the Canaanites Ham's descendants would eventually bow down to the Israelites Shem's descendants. Okay, and Noah's prophetic blessing set all this into motion, and it's going to it's going to culminate when Messiah comes again in the near future. Well, chapter nine ends by informing us that Noah lived for another 350 years after the Great Flood, dying at the ripe old age of 950. Not bad, huh? Not bad. Well, let's move on to chapter 10 and get a little, a little ways into this tonight. Chapter 10 of Genesis. You know, before we start to read it, it's, it's quite common in the teaching of the Bible to, to go around Genesis chapter 10. Typically, the reason is that the content is about as interesting as reading a dictionary. All right? a, a dictionary full of difficult names that have little bearing on much of anything except, it seems, perhaps, to Bible academics. Well, we're going to read chapter 10 and we're going to chew on it for a little bit. And the reason is that here we will see what is often referred to as the table of nations. And I do think it's important to know which nations come from which family lines of Noah. And one of the reasons this is important is because of these blessings and curses and destinies that God decided was going to follow each of these three family lines until history ends. You see, we're tied to these destinies like it or not, because we're tied to Noah's sons. So when you find yourself in one of these three lines of humans as we go on, you identify yourself. Don't scream at me about it if you're one of the ones that's cursed or something. Okay, (laughs) Complain to God about it. I didn't pick it. Now, these blessings and curses and destinies haven't ended. Not at all. all right. Rather, their true fulfillment is playing out in our time. All right. And it's going to continue until Christ sits on his throne on earth. Now, to God, family lines are always key. Okay, We've already seen this constant pattern of God dividing, selecting, separating. All right. That was a major part of... Of what occurred in Noah's blessings of his three sons, because those blessings created divisions. Three of them. And we saw this principle of division established early on when God divided light from dark, evil from good. We saw it when he divided mankind into male and female. We saw it when Seth became the line of good and his brother Cain the line of evil. Now we see it with Shem becoming the line of good, and Ham becoming the line of evil, and Yefet the line of fruitfulness. And if we were to follow this theme all the way into the New Testament, we find Christ, that seed of the woman, who had to come from a specific family line divided off from all other family lines. Let us remember that these lines of good that we follow down through, beginning with Seth and then finally on down to Shem and further on down, all the way down to Christ. um, Are that path the line of good, right? That leads us to Christ, all right? And knowing these details about family lines is really key to understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. So let's go ahead and read a little bit of chapter 10 tonight. Here's the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavon, Tuval, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rifat, and Togamah. The sons of Yavon were Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the islands of the nations were divided into their lands, each according to its language, according to their families in their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Sva, Havala, Safta, Ramah, and Safka. The sons of Ramah were Shiva and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod who was the first powerful ruler on earth. He was a mighty hunter before Adonai. This is why people say, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Adonai. His kingdom began with Bavel, Arach, Ahad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Asher went out from that land and built Nineveh, the city Rehovot, Kelah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kelah. That one is the great city. Let's stop there for a minute. Since all the present world has been populated by Noah's three sons, it's only fitting that we would know something of each of those who followed them. Interestingly, though academics tend to scoff at the Bible, they grudgingly admit that the 10th chapter of Genesis is probably the most accurate and complete document of its kind pertaining to the origination of the nations and the races. Now, it would not be inaccurate to say that, generally speaking, Shem populated Asia. Shem populated Asia, all the way down into here. All right. Um, Ham populated Africa, and Yafet populated Europe. Of course, there are exceptions to that. But in general, that would be a way you could look at it. Now, as we look at this map, Many of the names I've just read to you start to appear. Now, without touching on all of them, we find, for instance, that the descend- defend- uh, descendants of Yefet became the Simri from Gomer, who were the first to settle the area of Wales and Brittany. Okay? The Scythians from Magog, who formed the Russian people. The Medes right, from Medai the Greeks from Yavon and the Thracians from Tiras, who became the Macedonians, from whom eventually came Alexander the Great. From these groups of people came the Germans and the Celts and the Armenians. Now, we should also take notice that in the line of Yephet was a fellow named Tarshish. Tarshish. Now, this is primarily modern day Spain here's Tarshish up here modern day Spain now some of you prophecy buffs may recognize the name Tarshish because it's mentioned in Isaiah okay. let's take a few minutes and examine a prophecy that's 2700 years old but whose fulfillment Has begun in most of our lifetimes. And it's continuing as we speak. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 60. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60, and we're only going to read verses 1 through 12. Isaiah chapter 60. I want you to follow along with me, please. Isaiah chapter 60. As I read this, I'd like you to think about world conditions as they stand today. Arise and shine, Yerushalayim, for your light has come. The glory of Adonai has risen over you. For although darkness covers the earth and thick darkness the peoples, on you, Adonai, will rise over you will be seen this glory nations will go toward your light and kings toward your shining splendor raise your eyes and look all around they are assembling and coming to you your sons are coming from a from far off your daughters being carried on their nurses hips then you will see and be radiant your heart will throb and swell with delight. For the riches of the seas will be brought to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land, young camels from Midian and Ifa, all of them coming from Sheva, bringing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praises of Adonai. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered for you, the rams of Neviot. Will be at your service. They will come up and be received on my altar as I glorify my glorious house. Who are these, flying along like clouds, like doves back to their dovecotes? The coastlands are putting their hope in me, with the Tarshish ships in the lead, to bring your children from far away and with them their silver and gold, for the sake of Adonai your Lord the Holy One of Israel, who glorifies you. Foreigners will rebuild your walls. Their kings will be at your service. For my, in my anger I struck you, but in my mercy I pity you. Your gates will always be open. They will not be shut by day or by night so that people can bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation or kingdom that won't serve you will perish. Yes, those nations will be utterly destroyed. Well, if you don't have a chill running down your spine, then you completely missed what I just read to you. Our generation is in the midst of this event I just read to you. This is about the Jews returning to Israel. But even more, it's about All Israelites returning to Israel. Now, we're going to get into this more fully in the months ahead. But for now, just know that the Jews only represent two of the 12 tribes of Israel. The other Israelite tribes in existence right now are in Asia for the most part. Many of them in the former Assyrian Empire, and they're going to be returning to the land very soon. How do I know this? Because not only is this in the prophecy of Isaiah, but it is even more specifically and in a more detailed fashion spoken of rather extensively in Ezekiel 37. And the Israeli government officially acknowledged for the first time in March of this year, a mere two months ago, that indeed... There have been found members of what has been termed the lost tribes of Israel and that they are Israelites, but they're not Jews. Okay, Now, that may be a little murky for some of you, but later it won't be. Now, I've often heard Bible teachers and pastors speak of how ships will come from Tarshish to bring the Jews back home to Israel in the, the last days, but that Tarshish wasn't literal... It was just a word that was symbolic of faraway places. Well, they must have been among the many who chose to skip over Genesis 10. Because we certainly see exactly who Tarshish is. He is a son of Gomer, a son of Japheth. Not only that, but one of the largest sects of Jews in existence is called Sephardic Jews. Sephardic Jews are Jews who came primarily, but not entirely, from a large group of Hebrews who settled in Spain during the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries. Many Sephardic Jews led the way back to the Holy Land late in the 19th century, then again after World War I, then some more after World War II. Spain equals Sephardic equals Tarshish. Okay. This is neither speculation nor allegory, just simply historical fact.